Now, for these past several weeks, as we've been in the first chapter of James, we've seen that the endurance of trials has been the dominant theme. God intends for his people to endure trials with joy because of the effect that that process has on the believer. Of course, by now we know that trials are tests, and God uses these tests to refine us more and more into the image of Christ. And as we saw last week, those who withstand the testing by trusting in God and being obedient to him, they will receive great reward, even the reward of eternal life. So then, the endurance of trials can be said to be producing for us great reward to our benefit. So after all of this, one unifying idea should become clear. And that is that God is doing good to us through the trials that he puts us through. Yet, James seems to anticipate a problem in the reception of this truth by his audience. The problem is that humans have weak faith and don't respond to trials in the way that they ought. You'll remember that James began his letter by addressing this problem. This is why he told his audience to be joyful in their trials. Because he knew that the natural response to trials is to grumble and complain. And so it should tell us something about the pervasiveness of this problem. That after having addressed it in the beginning, he feels the need to come to it again. So James spends these next five verses, verses 13 to 18, defending God from being accused of harming his people by way of trials and tests. That's what these five verses are about. You see, James recognizes that when trials come upon people, it appears to them as though God is being cruel rather than loving. And when we have fallen to the lure of sin, due in part to the difficulty brought on by our trials, it appears as though it was God himself who tempted us and made us fall. And so to us miserable infants struggling to stand and walk, it appears as though our Father, who is supposed to love us, is knocking us down and causing us to go astray. So let me start, brothers and sisters, by telling you that this could not be further from the truth. And so James' dispelling of this misunderstanding will be our topic for this morning. As we explore, I want you to keep this big idea uh, at the forefront of your minds. That God gives good gifts to his children. Again, God gives good gifts to his children. Now before we go any further into our big idea... I want us to spend a little time getting to understand the nature of the misunderstanding that James seeks to dispel. This misunderstanding that God is the one that tempts us. The question we have to answer is, why is there a misunderstanding in the first place? Well, the answer has to do with a very close relationship between trials and temptation. If you looked at the original Greek word for trial and the original Greek word for temptation you would realize that it's the same word. Such is the closeness of relationship between the two concepts. And this close relationship exists because in order for a trial or test to be a trial or test, temptation must be present. Remember last week we saw that ultimately what all of us are being tested on is whether or not we will trust God and obey Him. And so when any trial or test comes, there will always be either the internal or external enticement to distrust God and disobey Him. By internal and external enticement, I simply mean that enticement that comes from inside of you 
or enticement that comes from outside of you, spectrum. I'll expand on those distinctions in a bit, but for now, suffice it to say that those who do resist this enticement or temptation to distrust God will pass the test. And those who do not resist will fail the test. And so now we should be able to see the area of possible confusion. A person may think that God is both bringing them into the trial and test, as well as tempting or enticing them to sin. You see, because both take place at the same time. Because of this, we may wrongfully ascribe both to God. And here James is saying, no. Let it not be said that we would believe such a thing. So we must distinguish between a trial and a temptation. Understand that, yes, it is God who is trying you and testing you. But God is not the one tempting you. He is not the one enticing you to do evil. And the best way to illustrate this is by looking at none other than the testing and temptation of Jesus. Immediately after Jesus' baptism, where did he go? He went to the wilderness to be tempted. Now who led Jesus there? The Holy Spirit. Matthew 4 and verse 1 says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. Indeed, it was God himself that led Jesus into that wilderness to face trial and temptation. But who actually tempted Jesus? That was Satan. The entirety of Matthew 4 verse 1 says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So after fasting for 40 days and nights, Jesus withstood external temptation from Satan. So this is the nature of the misunderstanding that James means to dispel. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. To be sure, there are those who tempt you, but it's not God. So with all that said, now we can get back to our big idea that God gives good gifts to his children. Now to help us organize this in our minds, I've divided my message into two main sections. Firstly, where bad things come from. And secondly, where good things come from. So let's start with where bad things come from. Verse 13 again. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So right away, James tells us that bad things do not come from God. As we just saw, God is not the one tempting to sin. And the explanation James gives as to why no one should say that they're being tempted by God is that God cannot be tempted with evil. I want you to imagine for a horrifying moment what it would look like, in this case, for God to be tempted with evil. For God to be drawn away after wickedness, like we often are. God would have to become a liar and a deceiver. We saw a few weeks ago when we looked at verse 5 that God has sincere, single-minded intent to give us good things, like wisdom, to help us endure testing. So for God to tempt us, he himself would have to be drawn away after evil to lie to us and break that promise. So instead of giving us good gifts, like wisdom, to help us stand firm during trial, he would be giving us bad gifts and foolishness to cause us to stumble and fall into sin. Friends, far be it from God to do such a thing. 
God cannot be tempted with evil. And furthermore, he himself tempts no one. Look, it's not as if God doesn't entice believers to sin, but he does entice the unbelievers. No. He himself tempts no one. So this is why no one should say, when they're being tested, that I'm being tempted by God. It's because of the implications of, of, of such a statement. It's because of what implications that would have for God's character. The fact that God cannot be tempted with evil and doesn't tempt anyone is rooted in who God is. He is pure, He is holy, and He's perfectly righteous. And that will never change. So for anyone to claim that He does tempt people would be to call God defiled, unholy, imperfect, unrighteous, and as shifting as the sands, changing from one opinion to the next. May such blasphemy never come from your mouth. Friends, the enticement to sin that you struggle with is not coming from God. And here now in verse 14, James lays out plainly where bad things come from. He says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The sad reality, friends, is that temptation or the enticement to do evil comes from inside of you comes from deep within your own heart. Our Lord Jesus said, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. So understand that when you are in a trial, let's say a hurricane strikes and you're left without power for days, <laughs> and your patience and contentment is being tested by God as now you need to wait for the workers to reconnect the power lines and fix various bits of infrastructure and so on and you have to make yourself satisfied with being without the internet or now you have to cook meals every day since you can't store them in the fridge and have leftovers so understand that when those trials come and you fail the test due to temptation Understand that it was not God's fault. Imagine being enticed to break God's law by coveting others because they have electricity. And look outside and you went darkness and everywhere got light. Now imagine that coveting leading to frustration and anger that in turn it leads you to curse somebody and perhaps embarrass yourself. Well now you have to face the consequences of having done that. Perhaps your reputation has been damaged or it has put strain on your relationships. James is telling us here that when such things happen, it wasn't God's fault. God actually brought you to the trial so that you could mature in it by joyful endurance. But instead, you followed your heart and went after evil. So my point is, any misery that we experience from failing a test is not God's doing. It's not God's fault. It's our own fault. This is why James, right after encouraging us in verse 12 to, to what? To stand firm through trials. Right after that, he tells us not to blame God for temptation. Because he knows that trials are hard and that we will not perfectly pass them. And so when we fail, we must not sin again by blaming God. We must take responsibility for our own sin. So don't be like Adam who after failing to trust God and obey Him, 
blamed God for the fact that he was drawn away after evil. Remember Adam said to God when he was found, it was the woman you gave me. He pointed the finger to God, so to speak. So friend, you must take responsibility for your own sin and its consequences. Now, earlier you heard me talk about internal enticement to sin and external enticement to sin. Or internal temptation and external temptation. What I mean by that is, just as James and our Lord Jesus said, evil and the desire to do evil comes from within you. Thus, it is internal. So as we look at where bad things come from, we should also know that along with the internal enticement to sin from our own hearts, there is also that external enticement to sin. Other sinners tempt us because of the sin that comes from inside of them. And so our own hearts, with the indwelling sin that lives within them, it likes to respond to that external call coming from other sinners. It's like birds calling to one another. That's how we operate. Then, of course, external temptation comes from Satan and his demons as they tempt us as well. Satan knows that the sin in our heart is like a fire, and he and his minions come alongside us and work to stoke those flames and make them more powerful. And so, brethren, this is why we need to heed James' warning in verse 15. After we are tempted, lured, and enticed by our own desire, James says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see, there is a progression to temptation. We need to be aware of how it develops so that we can fight it. James is helping us here to be watchful over our heart. He says it starts with desire. Your flesh wants to sin because it takes pleasure in sinning. It's important to note this because we may think that we are okay so long as we don't act on our sinful desires. And so we entertain those sinful thoughts and desires. We play with them the way a young child might try to play with a centipede. That's not going to end well. Brothers and sisters, know that desire, if left unchecked, leads to sinful acts. We act sinfully because of the raging fire of sinful desire that was left to grow into an inferno. We made no effort to try to quell it. And ultimately, that sin will lead to death. Physical death, yes. But then afterward, the second death in the lake of fire where God punishes all of those who have indulged in sin. Punishes them for eternity. The flames of evil that engulfed the heart now joining with the fires of hell. Now we know that coming to terms with the blackness that still remains in our hearts is grim. And it ought to be sobering. But it is good that we know where bad things come from. It's good that we know that our own hearts are the source of temptation. Primarily, I should say. And that God, while putting us through trials, isn't the one tempting us. Could you imagine if God was tempting us? There would be no hope of resisting Him. Uh, but we know that we are not fighting God. Rather, we are fighting against ourselves, Satan, sin, and the world. And the good news is, 
he who has overcome Satan, sin, and the world is always here to help us. Remember, brothers and sisters, we have a great and awesome Savior in Jesus Christ who was never tempted internally the way we are. His heart was perfect and pure and righteous. And when Satan tried to tempt him externally, he resisted perfectly and passed the test, showing himself to be the only worthy Savior of mankind, the spotless Lamb of God. And Jesus lived, died, and rose so that you could have his righteousness as your own, and so that by faith in him, you could have access to help from above, so that you could receive good things from above. So after we've had to endure the grim task of coming to terms with where bad things come from, let's now turn our attention to where good things come from. James encourages us, look at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. As James says, do not be deceived, brother. Don't be fooled. God is doing good to you through the trials that you endure. Don't let anyone or anything shake your faith in the truth that God, as a good father, gives good gifts to his children. As I said before, God does not, and indeed would not, entice you to evil. Our Lord makes this point to us in Matthew 7. In Matthew 7, Jesus Christ says, Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Brethren, God tempting us would be like a father giving his children poison when they come to him hungry and asking to be fed. God would never do that. Instead, the food that he gives the gifts that he gives are good and perfect. The challenge is for us then to recognize God's good and perfect gifts in the midst of temptation, in the midst of trial. First of all, there is the trial itself. As we've seen before, trials, when allowed to do their work, refine us and shape us into more Christ-like people. So imagine a child who has, who has to take a, a, a shower in cold water. Well, the shower is good. It cleans them and it washes away filth and it helps to keep them healthy. But the shower is cold and cold is uncomfortable. And the child may grumble and fret as if the shower was a form of torture. But no, the shower is a good gift from the parent and a necessary one. Well, likewise, trials too are necessary. And once completed, they result in reward for those who have faithfully endured them. And then secondly, within the trials are the means of grace that God gives us to help us endure. Good gifts like prayer. Because prayer reminds us that God sovereignly sits over and above us as the guardian of our souls. Good gifts like brothers and sisters in the faith who are there to encourage us and take care of us. Good gifts like real joy and real peace that passes all understanding. 
a joy and peace that comes from knowing that whatever happens in this life, whatever trial you face, whatever difficulty, your sins have been paid for. No more burden of debt remains for you. The pages of scripture abound with the good gifts that God graciously gives us to bear us up through the trials of life. Yet, despite all of this, like children being made to endure a shower in cold water, we may feel as though our Heavenly Father doesn't know what He's doing. Even if we accept that God means to do us good, we may think that perhaps, well, He means well, but He just doesn't know the best way to do good to us. The child might ask, why the cold shower? Can't you just boil some water and mix it in? You know, maybe take a, a bath out of a bucket or something, so I can have warm water. Why the cold? Likewise, we ask God, why this trial? Isn't there a better way to refine me? Why this? Well, if we doubt God's wisdom, look at where James says that the good and perfect gifts come from. They come down from the Father of lights. Now, this is one of the many names or titles for God. And this name identifies God as being the creator of the heavenly bodies. The sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxies, and all other manner of objects in space. So why does James use this title here? Well, you see, James is writing to increase our confidence in God. When we think that he doesn't know what he's doing, he's increasing our confidence. And so a great way to do that is to remind his audience who God is. He is the all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present creator of everything. The one who alone is powerful enough, and listen, wise enough, to have created all things. Jeremiah 10 verses 12 and 13 say, God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. Well, brothers and sisters, I want you to know that this same inconceivable wisdom also determines the process by which you are sanctified. It also determines the trials that you go through. They're not random. They're not haphazard. They were planned specifically for you by the wisdom of God. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. And as I just read to you from Jeremiah, the heavens also declare the wisdom of God. So listen for a few moments to some facts. Did you know that the earth was perfectly designed for us to live on? The earth's orbit or path around the sun. Did you know that it is perfectly shaped and designed by God so that it doesn't get too far away or too close to the sun? If the earth got too close to the sun, it would get too hot and all of the water that we need to live would boil away. It would literally boil away into space. And if the earth got too far away, all the water would freeze. Even the sun is unique in that God designed it to be surprisingly stable when compared to other stars. That means the sun doesn't experience wild variations in its brightness like other stars do. This again keeps the temperature and radiation on earth within livable limits. And also the relatively rare times when the sun's radiation does increase to more harmful levels, God designed the earth with a magnetic field and it shields us from that radiation. 
the, the huge molten mass of rock rotating at the Earth's core, it literally makes an energy shield for the Earth. <laughs> it's not science fiction, this is fact. <laughs> and the Earth was designed with just the right amount of mass and thus gravity. And that holds on to the atmosphere. If there was not enough mass and gravity, all the air that we would need to breathe would escape into space. But listen to this, too much mass, and it changes the composition of the atmosphere such that it becomes toxic, and there can't be any life. And also, God designed the Earth to be tilted on its axis at just the right angle to produce the seasons. No, the Earth is not straight up, the ball is kind of tilted. And that is what produces the spring, summer, winter, and fall. And also, the Earth rotates at just the right speed, that 24 hours. And this is by God's design. This ensures that the temperatures on the daylight side don't get too hot, and that the temperatures on the nighttime side don't get too cold. It's all perfectly balanced and designed. Now, all of you who know me know that I can go on and on with this, but I'll stop there. Well, hopefully you see my point. The same wisdom that designed and created this intricate balance that makes life possible is the same wisdom at work when God places you into a trial or test. God knows the situation that you're in. He knows how it will produce the best outcome for you. He knows how your pain and suffering will turn out for your blessing and reward. He knows what he is doing, even if you don't. Remember that the same God, who is the Father of lights, is your Father as well. And James continues that by saying that with God there is no variation or shadow due to change. And this actually goes back to James' statement that God cannot be tempted with evil. He cannot be enticed away from his promised intent to do good to us and to give us good gifts. And no length of time is going to change that. God is not fickle like us. We change our minds frequently. We say one thing and we do the next. But God's will and intent is fixed. Thus, the truth about God's unchanging nature secures for us his promises of goodness towards us. He said it, and that is how it is. It's not going to change. God tempts no one, and he never will. He does good to his children, and he always will. Finally, friends, James encourages us that God, of his own will, brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God's intent to bless us in and through trials is rooted in his unchanging plan to make us preeminent among all his creation. That's what it means to be first fruits. It, it means to be preeminent or highly distinguished above all else that God has made. This is the exaltation of believers to be heirs with Christ of God's kingdom. God wants to glorify us with Christ. This is why he sent Jesus, the living word, to save us. By his wisdom, he directed all of history to bring the man, Christ Jesus, into the world. And by his wisdom, he means to bring all of history to its culmination or its consummation as Christ sits enthroned on his eternal kingdom, in his eternal kingdom rather, with all who are his, ruling and reigning with him. Friends, this is the will of God. This is what God wants. And James is telling us here that because it is his will and plan, nothing is going to change it. There is nothing that can thwart his plan. There is nothing that can frustrate his work. 
There's no power in heaven or on earth or under the earth that can break what is called the golden chain. It comes from Romans 8, 28-30. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. In order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And here's the chain. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also what? Glorified. What confidence this should give us. The trials that we face will result in our eventual glorification. There's no question about it. Regardless of how we may feel when we suffer or when we fail, and regardless of how we at times allow ourselves to be lured away after sin, we will not ultimately be crushed by the weight of trial and temptation. That is not God's plan for those whom He has redeemed. So brethren, think on these things. Think on them throughout this coming week. God is doing good to you as he molds you and saves you through trials. You're not always going to have an easy go at life. But God wants what is best for you, not that which will hurt you. It may not always look or feel that way. But remember that his wisdom has always worked out things that you don't understand. Did you know that scientists, even to this day, don't have a good explanation of what gravity is? Gravity. Yet, by God's wisdom, we all remain firmly fixed to the floor. You may not understand exactly why God is doing what He's doing in your life, but you don't need to in order to stay firmly fixed on Him by faith. Remember that His plan is not going to change. And this plan is not going to fail either. And one day soon, temptation will be a thing of the past. No more will bad things come from within us. And no more will bad things come from outside of us. No more will they attack us from outside. Beloved, our glorious future is to be one filled with good things. As we spend eternity with a loving Father who only gives good gifts to His children.